This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Dr. Richard Williams occurred in October 2021. Well, to the guest at hand, he has never been uh, with us before, but we're very pleased to have him here. Uh, His name is Dr. Richard Williams, uh, a tremendous resume for sure. He served for almost 27 years as the director for social science with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the Food and Drug Administration. He was also the VP for Policy Research at George Mason University and recently served on the U.S. EPA Science Advisory Board. And he's the board chairman for the Center for Truth in Science and a board member of the Institute for the Advancement of Food and Nutrition Sciences. We are speaking today specifically about a brand new work that he has penned called Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions, again, by Dr. Richard Williams. Dr. Williams, uh, how are you, my friend? I'm fine. Thank you so much. Well, very pleased to have you here. Let's uh, let's do this first. Uh, we certainly want to talk about fixing food, but I would like to get your opinion overall because of the many organizations that you've worked with uh, and the nature of your resume. Overall, uh, do we have a handle in from a very high level in the United States, at least, on general food safety? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I think we have a handle. My, the point of my book is we can do a lot better. FDA says year after year, along with the CDC, that one out of six people get sick from food poisoning every single year. That's literally too high. Uh, we don't need to do that. And I think there's a lot of answers for that, and they don't necessarily um, aren't going to be solved by FDA. So, do we have a handle on it? It's a pretty safe food supply compared to a lot of countries. But we can do a lot better. Here's another question, too. And I did, did, does, or could uh, the 18 months of the pandemic that we've been through, what kind of tentacles or effect, if any, uh, has it had on either the role of the FDA or how the FDA might approach something, or are they connected in any way, shape, or form? Well, first of all, you need to know that FDA is a very large organization. It manages uh, overseas about 20 to 25 cents of every dollar that consumers spend. So the food section is completely different than the drug section. So for the pandemic, that's mostly affected by how FDA manages uh, drug approvals. So this is a completely different area. The one area of overlap um, that we see is that when you look at the number of deaths from the pandemic, about 30%, about 120,000, say out of 400,000 a year, um, were severely affected by by people being obese, led to more deaths. So that's the one overlap. What about... um Again, when we we start to narrow our focus now towards the book a little bit, one of the interesting things you just said was that one out of every six Americans is going to get food poisoning. Now, does that come from necessarily food that is overseen, so to speak, by the FDA, meaning it's the food I buy in a grocery store or I buy at some retail location versus food that I would get, for example, being served at a restaurant? 
So it's, it's, it's both. Uh, FDA is responsible for, for overseeing 80% of the food supply, so it's everything but meat and poultry. And certainly meat and poultry are responsible for a lot of foodborne disease. But foodborne disease can come from the food that you buy at the grocery store. It comes from restaurants. And it also comes from consumers making mistakes in preparing, food, preparing and keeping food. Are there different? Well, I guess there's not necessarily different standards, Buzz. But and again, just in, from a general point of view, are you more likely statistically to get food poisoning by food prepared for you at a restaurant or from something you've purchased in a store? Yeah, I don't think we actually have those actual statistics. Uh, they're they're both pretty high. Um, clearly, you know, when you purchase from a restaurant, that's only uh, that restaurant that's that's uh, causing a problem. Whereas if it's food that's packaged, that's packaged food that goes all over the United States. So when we have an outbreak that comes from a manufacturer that's selling food all over the country, those are going to be larger. So the likely answer, it's going to be from from the packaged food. You know, you mentioned uh, obesity here. And, and again, just sort of like you talked about, the, the, the amount of obesity, the percentage of Americans that are either overweight or obese is extraordinarily high. What is the FDA, if the FDA is labeling and requiring certain labeling, whether it's calories, fat, all the, all the sugar content, et cetera, et cetera, at what point does the FDA say, look, we, our job is to give you the information. I, I can't make you stop eating. I mean, what, at what point do their, does their role stop and say, look, you got you to gotta be a responsible adult? Well, it's a good point. Uh, we've had food labeling, um, you know, for 30 years now, uh, and that was supposed to help with diet uh, and disease relationships. It really hasn't done much, and part of the problem is food labeling is very complex. It's hard for people to understand. And certainly there is a certain amount of, of, of personal behavior that FDA can't address in terms of people overeating. And, and as you know, the obesity problem is, is only getting more complex. Um, but I think the, the real issue for me is is that where food labeling is complex, we have new devices coming on the market that will completely reduce that complexity down to something that makes sense and help people on an individual basis, which we now understand is much more important than broad diets, uh, to make decisions that will get them both uh, thinner and healthier. So do you, does that responsibility fall to the FDA, or again, or does it fall to... Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith sitting on their couch versus taking a two-mile walk every day? Well, here's the part that falls to FDA. So these devices, because they actually will help uh, diagnose individual diseases and give recommendations, they're going to fall in the categories of something that FDA calls medical devices. That's a whole center all by itself. Uh, and those medical devices, in, in many cases, are going to have to be pre-approved. The problem with that is it costs tens of millions of dollars to go through the pre-approval process and sometimes can take up to a year. And every time you make an improvement, you have to go back to FDA and have them uh, approve your improvement. So one of the things that I'm concerned about is that where these devices could be tremendously helpful in, in helping us solve, and this is truly a pandemic, we're expecting half of the United States to be obese by 2030, just at the end of this decade. If FDA is too slow and, and, and uh, to approve these things and it costs too much, it's going to greatly slow down that technology that could really be helpful. And so I think that's where FDA uh, needs to come in and perhaps change its practices.
If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis, again from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. Got a good one going here with Dr. Richard Williams, uh, who for 20, almost 30 years, uh, served as the director for social science with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, he is, serves on numerous boards related to food and nutrition. Uh, but we're talking about a brand new work called Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. So, Dr. Williams, uh, when you started your career and you went into work uh, at the FDA, uh, looking back on it, were you... What about your experience there was a pleasant surprise, so to speak? What about it was very disappointing? And is there, again, sort of a headline, so to speak, if you could wave a wand over the FDA, what would be one thing that you'd want to have changed or improved upon? Well, so when I went into FDA, I'd had quite a career already. I'd been in Vietnam and in the Army. I'd been to undergraduate school, managed a couple of fast food chain restaurants, graduate school, and finally taught at Washington Lee University. I had planned to keep my job as a professor, but my graduate advisor said, well, you need to go into FDA and maybe do some good and get some stories to tell your classes. Uh, but when I got there, uh, first of all, I was really pleased to be there. The work at FDA is fascinating. The risk issues, particularly for me, were, were so interesting, and I think that's one of the reasons I stayed there. One of the things that was really hard, though, as soon as I got in, I was told to just write what you're told to write and, and do what you're told. And the problem was nobody understood what I was doing because I was their first economist. Uh, and I, this came out of first President Carter passing a, an executive order that said we need to start looking at costs and benefits of rules. And then President Reagan actually putting in a whole new organization in the Office of Management and Budget to oversee that. But nobody understood what that was about uh, except me. So that was very difficult. And I think in terms of waving a wand, um, I personally would like to see the FDA take a, a new approach to how we um, oversee technology. So FDA has pre-approval rights on things like medical devices, on drugs, on uh, additives. And what I would like the FDA to do is to focus a little more on the benefits of those technologies and where it's appropriate to get them onto the market faster so that more inventors will come forward and help us to solve some of these problems. To me, that's one of the number one problems. Got it. How, how political uh, is the FDA? And by that, let me frame this a little bit for you. Is it possible that either decisions that are made, research that done or not done, projects that are taken up or not taken up, are they ever subject to uh, intense either lobbying or other political or other efforts, either by food companies or food concerns or particular food trade association groups, et cetera, in any way trying to flex muscle into getting in certain readings or regulations coming out of FDA or lack of regulations out of FDA? Sure, absolutely. I mean, FDA is a, a federal regulatory agency, which by definition means that they are political uh, and they work for the president. And so if the president wants them to do something, that's what they're going to do. Um, in terms of lobbying, absolutely, unlike, just like every other regulatory agency, the particular kinds of lobbying that FDA sees mostly are by large businesses who lobby for regulations that they can easily comply with but will put their smaller competitors at a disadvantage. And usually, because FDA likes to keep the, uh, the extent of their regulations as large as possible, large corporations get their way frequently. 
and that's usually um, at the expense of competition and ultimately consumers. What about also then the intersection of the FDA and the medical community, medical research, uh, nutritional research that's saying, look, um, we have new evidence that shows that these particular food groups are good or they're bad or they're, they're bringing this to the table versus not. Tell us about some of maybe those regulations. And I'm sure undoubtedly there's medical staff within the FDA, but share with us a little bit about that. Well, so there's a lot of problems with epidemiology. And, and nutrition epidemi- epidemiology is probably the worst. Epidemiology is when we study people. So this is not like animal studies. We, we try to see... For example, when people eat a particular diet or particular foods, will that lead to disease? The problem with that is, one of the biggest problems with that is, we start with really bad data. So to find out what people eat, we ask them. And we say, what did you eat in the last 24 hours? And how much of it did you eat? Well, it turns out that people either can't remember very well or they don't want to acknowledge the fact that they had a quart of ice cream. And so what happens is when you look at how much food they report eating, 60% of people don't report eating enough food to even stay alive. So the oh, researchers God. then, <laughs> researchers have to fill in, well, what do we think they ate? Sure. And so that's why you get so many bad studies, and they seem to reverse each other all the time. So as a part of all that is, is if if there's bad information coming in, can the FDA really do a do their job to the fullest, so to speak, uh, if they're working with bad data? Well, it's it's extremely difficult. I mean, uh, the FDA uses the food label and says, "Here's how much you should eat," you know, of, of say uh, saturated fat or how much sodium you should get, and those all of those recommendations are based on that data, based on those diet disease relationships, which, as I said. Um, are not providing as good information. We're on the cusp of getting much better information. We're getting basically large data sets. We're getting better statistics in order to analyze these things. I think ultimately we're going to have uh, better data, but up until now, it's been very problematical. I'd like to go back also uh, again, Dr. Williams, and talk a little bit about the political nature of that, or or in maybe framed a better way, the way that politics can influence what the FDA does, doesn't do, projects they take on, et cetera. Does it, is there a marked difference between a Democrat in the White House and maybe a Democrat-controlled Congress versus a Republican and a Republican Congress, or are there not necessarily, those aren't really where the political pressures come from? I would say there's not, a, there's obviously always going to be a difference, but it's not a marked difference. Um, my brother used to work in the federal government in another agency, and we don't. Every time in the election, we'd ask, "Well, did you get a good one or a bad one?" You know, in terms of a commissioner or a secretary, and um, you know, we sort of went back and forth on that. But honestly, it's not. It, the president is is supposed to be in charge of the agencies, but it's very difficult given the number of agencies and the vast number of people working in the executive branch for them to do that. More interestingly, is Congress, because Congress is control of the budget, and that's the one thing. Um, that all regulatory agencies care about. Are you going to increase my budget or decrease it, even worse? Congress has not paid much attention to overseeing FDA or any of the regulatory agencies, for that matter. Um, I had one example where somebody from labor went in and tried to brief them on what they were doing, on what their accomplishments were, and not one staffer showed up, not one. So I, I think this is a big problem, is that there is insufficient oversight um, of, of FDA as well as other regulatory agencies.
you were at FDA almost three decades. Did the role, uh, the expectation, and I'll, I'll throw this in there as well, the FDA's power, so to speak, uh, did it change and morph o- over time? And if, it, if so, tell us a little bit about what some of those changes might have been that you saw over the course of 30 years. Well, over the course of nearly 30 years, and also looking back at the history of the FDA, remember, FDA is our oldest regulatory agency, and it's um, one author said it's the most powerful regulatory agency in the world. And certainly over my 30 years and even preceding that, what's happened is FDA has always gained more and more power as time goes on. So is that a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what's going on? Well, in my view, uh, that makes FDA um, a monopoly, uh, and I think it's 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 a bad thing. I think we the job has expanded so much as as markets expand, the the drug market and the biologics and medical devices and now tobacco and foods that it's really too much for one agency. And there have been some recommendations over the years uh, on how to change that. One that I think is particularly interesting. Um, is one where where we ha- actually have private regulators, but FDA oversees th- those regulators as sort of a super super regulator. But those people can specialize in in a very small area, and they they can weigh off how fast you should approve something with making sure that you get the quality right. And I think that would be an an enormous advantage to what we're doing now. You know, you touched on this briefly earlier, and I'm, I'm sure members of our audience would be interested in your take on this, and that is the whole idea of food labeling, uh, how it's changed or how it may be changing going forward. Uh, overall, I, you see a constantly when you're in the grocery store, you see people looking at the back of a box or a can or a container, and you can tell that they're looking at the, at the, at the information on that food label. Tell us again, in your opinion... Uh, where do those food labels fail, and what needs to be done? Well, uh, you know, I was responsible for one of the people responsible for um, analyzing the benefits and costs of food labeling when it came in. I was incredibly excited by food labeling. I thought this can make a huge difference. If people read these labels, if they understand them, if they change their purchase behavior in terms of um, getting healthier foods, and then if in turn that that those changes in purchases lead to uh, healthier outcomes, I thought this would be fantastic. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that, in fact, people didn't understand food labels. We'd had them since 1973, and the then commissioner said, boy, before we put these food labels on any more products, back then they were just on products that made uh, health claims, we need to find out if consumers understand them. It turns out they don't. Um, and I go through this uh, extensively in the book on why these things are so hard and where one person who was told said it was harder to figure out what to eat than it is to do your own taxes. And so I think any more tinkering with the food label is not going to get us there. I think there are, as I said, I, there are new consumer devices, sort of like a Fitbit that would come, that are coming on the market that will look at you as an individual, look at your genetics, your microbiome, your exercise, all of your, your entire environment, and make recommendations based on foods that you probably like anyway to eat. To me, that's a that's going to be a, a tremendous improvement over trying to educate people about food labels. 
What about uh, this whole area uh, that is growing rapidly of the, quote, natural and organic food market uh, continues to grow? It used to be confined in many ways to certain sort of natural grocery stores. That certainly is changing as it sort of mainstreams itself. Is is there, in your opinion, sort of defined for us, in your opinion anyway, organic versus non-organic? And is there a fallacy there or is that legit? Well, I mean, the, the definition is, is not a fallacy. They Generally, what organic does, I mean, the main thing it does is it tries to avoid using um, pesticides that are sprayed on. Uh, unfortunately, it, that's that's an issue because plants need pesticides, and that's why they've developed themselves. All plants have pesticides to keep from being eaten by insects and others. And so that by weight, 99% of the, of the uh, pesticides that you consume are natural pesticides. So that's not really so much of an issue. I think uh, the USDA puts out a report every year. They look at the pesticide residues on plants, and they find that the residues are so tiny, they're not at risk to anyone. So, I mean, you can buy organic if you have the money and it makes you feel better, but it's, it's certainly not going to be healthier for you. All right, so prognosticate a little bit. Uh, go out five years, a decade from now. Is the FDA... Uh, closer uh, to more exacting science? Have they ridded themselves of some of the things that you think are standing in their way? Or does it need a pretty serious brand new makeover? Well, I I don't know that I can prognosticate. I can tell you what I wish. I I wish that they would get a a makeover and a makeover that falls in line with the the new technologies that are coming along in terms of the new proteins, better traceback technologies, which FDA is interested in, um, all of the, even even including 3D printers, 3D food printers for the home, things like that, all of these new technologies will help to make food safer and help consumers make healthier choices. They're coming along fast, and to the extent that FDA can essentially approve, if they need to approve them, approve them quickly if they're safe uh, and, and not drag it out, not make uh, manufacturers spend or innovators spend too much money trying to develop them. If that happens in five to ten years, then we will have made vast improvements. Whether or not it happens depends not just on FDA, but also on Congress, who has to write the enabling laws. All right, well, we're going to have you back in the near future, and we'll see how how we're doing. The work, again, is called Fixing Food, and FDA Insider uh, unravels the myths and solutions. Uh, it's a good one by Dr. Richard Williams, who spent uh, almost 30 years inside the FDA, amongst other uh, important uh, positions that he has had on nutrition and in health. Dr. Williams, uh, how can people pick up a copy of Fixing Food and find out more about the FDA in general and maybe some other work that you have done? Well, first of all, one of the things they can do to do all of that is just to go on my website. It's richardawilliams.com, and you'll see there you can buy the book any number of places in your local bookstore, on Amazon, or anything like that. If they're interested in this, I have a weekly post that I put out, and you can sign up for that post. Um, And that also lists a lot of my past uh, op-eds and papers that people can read. Well, appreciate you very much. We have not talked. Uh, we have been remiss. We have not really talked much about the FDA over the many years that this show has been around. And uh, pleased to have broken that streak with you. Best of luck to you. And again, would like to have you uh, back in the future very much. And let's uh, take a look and see how things are going. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back. You bet. We'll be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Dr. Williams, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.